Let's open the Word of God together to the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, also written by the Apostle John, whose word, whose gospel word we've just heard read. Revelation chapter 5, and I'll be reading beginning with verse 1. Revelation 5, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. It's the word of the Apostle John. It is the word of God for us today. And John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, quote, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And this is the word of the Lord. And may he richly bless his proclamation and its hearing. For those of us who are familiar with the word of God, we know that Jesus is not the only name applied to our Savior. In fact, he's known by a number of names in the Word of God. You might obviously know him as the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, or that enigmatic title, Son of Man, that is especially given to exalt his deity, Son of Man. We know him as Counselor. We know him as Redeemer. We know him as the Bread of Life, the Good Shepherd, the Lord of Glory. We know him as the King of Kings, the Rock and the Prince of Peace. But here, there's another name for Jesus. And it's important that we look at this this unusual name of Jesus because there's a lot of opinion still afloat today about who this man Jesus really was. Well, his names, the various names that we find ascribed to him in the Word of God, tell us something about him. And they're all important. But some of them are more prominent in our minds than others. And we're reading one today that I would dare say very few people, and certainly very few people out on the street, have ever, have ever thought of when they thought of Jesus. The man who wrote this very strange-sounding epistle, Revelation, was exiled on an island prison colony called Patmos, the Apostle John. And while he was there under the prison sentence of the emperor late in the first century, he has an incredible vision, a revelation of Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God. And in this fifth chapter, he, he has this incredible vision. He, he, he writes it down. He writes all the chapters of this vision down, and he sends it to seven churches in Asia Minor that are especially, especially being persecuted. He writes this letter to support persecuting Christians who, in some cases, are dying for their faith. And he wants to give them a vision of the Jesus who is the real Jesus. 
And he hears voices in this vision of the elders. And these elders cry out another name for Jesus. And you see it here, the lion. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah. The lion who has conquered. The lion of Judah. Now what in the world does that name mean? The lion of Judah. And how does this name that we find in this apocalyptic book, this last book of Scripture, how does this name that we very seldom think of help us understand the Jesus who is? Well, you probably didn't anticipate this, but here on Easter Sunday, we're going to think about lions for a moment. Lions. In the land of the Bible, during the first century, during the days of Jesus, lions were were there. They, They were largely found around those thickets near the Jordan River. When John heard the word lion, or any first century saint heard the word lion, they they knew immediately that that was was an animal that's very prominent in the Old Testament. In fact, of all the animals that could be mentioned in the Bible, it just so happens that the lion is the most frequently mentioned animal in all of Scripture. And no one needs a Ph.D. in animal science to know that a lion gives off images of power and authority and ferocity. And so it's no wonder that in the Old Testament, especially, the lion becomes the symbol for God himself, his fierce wrath, his judgmental authority. As we read the Old Testament, especially the prophets, the Old Testament prophetic books, we we see the prophets speaking of God as a lion. And I want to give you a taste of this. I want you just to listen to some of these prophetic words. We think about the prophet Hosea. In Hosea chapter 5, the prophet, speaking under the inspiration of the Lord himself, describes God as a lion whose fierce anger is frequently unleashed against unrepentant sinners. Listen to these words, Hosea 5, 14. God says, I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. God, the lion. Again, in the 13th chapter of Hosea, the prophet, quoting God verbatim, he he writes these words from heaven. The Lord says, so I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will wait by the wayside. And that should send shockwaves into the heart of every sinner. The Lord God is like a lion. We, We see this lion image of God in that book we know so well, the book of Job, the book of the man who suffered, maybe like no other human being had ever suffered under the hand of God, under the Lord's disciplinary activity, his sanctifying activity. And there Job describes the Lord this way, you hunt me like a lion, Job says. But then there's an image in the prophet Joel of the Lord being a lion for his people, 
for his people, who protects his people, who will, who will keep them from danger, the ones upon whom he set his love. He will defend them like a lion. Joel 3.16, the Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens tremble, the earth trembles, but the Lord is a refuge for his people. It's as if the Lord is the lion who's in front of his people and no one can get to his people without going through the lion. What a comforting, comforting thought that is. And we could go on and on, 130 passages, if we had time, would show us that God himself is like a lion. If we summarize what the Old Testament was trying to say, or is trying to say, we would, we, we would conclude that, that this, this idea that God is a lion is all about his authority and his royal majesty, his sovereign power. He punishes his enemies, and he shelters those whom he loves. And so John, exiled on that island of Patmos, hears about Jesus whose name is the lion, the lion. But not just the lion, he's not just any lion, according to the voice of the elder, he's the lion of Judah. So what does it mean that one of the names of Jesus is lion of Judah? The name Judah it's like the name Judas. Friday night, we, in our Good Friday service, we considered the awful, tragic life of the man named Judas, whose name means praise the Lord, oddly enough. And the shortened form Judah also means praise. Judah, the Judah, was a special person in the Old Testament. He was the fourth son of the patriarch Jacob and his wife Leah. And his father bestowed upon Judah an exalted position over his older brothers. His older brothers were, were, were scoundrels in some ways. And, and the father said, Judah is my exalted son. And so in, in Genesis 49, 8, the father pronounces a blessing on Judah, his son. And he says this, Judah, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand, now listen to this, here's a prophecy of the father to the son Judah. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies your father's son shall bow down to you. The scepter will not depart from you, Judah. So Judah was the exalted son, the exalted one. Later on, these words that Jacob spoke to Judah would be picked up by David, by King David. And King David would interpret these words to be applying to him as he established his royal lineage in Jerusalem as the king of Israel. In fact, you can listen to the words of the prophet Samuel, 2 Samuel 7, as the Davidic covenant is formed with David in light of God's blessing to Judah. Listen to this. When your days are complete says God to David, 
when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he will build a house for my name. And listen to this, I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. And there in the late first century, he's the last surviving apostle, John, the beloved disciple. There he is all alone. God gives him a vision of Jesus. And the name of Jesus is sounded from heaven. And it it is the lion from the tribe of Judah. That in this one name, Jesus, rests all of God's sovereign power, his authority. He is the Lord. He is the king of the universe. He has no peers. He has no rivals. No one shall challenge his position or his prominence. He is irresistibly powerful. And this is the one that John saw. The same one who was born in the manger and who lived a life of perfect obedience to God, who was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, tried in a kangaroo court, found guilty, nailed to a cross, died, whose body was placed in the tomb, and on Sunday morning rose again. The resurrection of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king, the king of the jungle, the king of the universe, Jesus. But maybe we need to go a bit further in understanding Jesus as a lion. I would dare say this shatters many images in our minds of Jesus. Jesus as a teacher, Jesus as a healer, Jesus as a wise man, Jesus as a champion of social justice, Jesus as this, Jesus as that. But have you ever thought about reading the Gospels and seeing the Gospels through the lens of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus acted like a lion all throughout his earthly life. I want to present several scenes to you this morning. You, you don't have to turn to these. You can just listen. Maybe jot down the references and read them later. But just think of these images of the lion-like nature of the one we worship today. Jesus begins his ministry after he's baptized in the Jordan by John. According to Matthew 4, he, he goes into the wilderness, and there he meets the tempter. The tempter comes to him. And so you have the lion of the tribe of Judah encountering the God of this age, the devil himself. And you know the story, the devil deploys, he uses three temptations on Jesus. These stones, he says, you could turn to bread and you could, you could quench your hunger, you could, you could not be fasting anymore, you could, you could satisfy your need, just use your power, just flick your fingers and turn the stones to bread. And then he says, you could also jump off the temple. And the angels will catch you. And what a spectacular display of your Messiahship. And you will have crowds and crowds teeming if you just jump off the temple and work a miracle for your followers. And then he says, if you won't turn stones to bread, if you won't jump off the pinnacle of the temple, then bow down and worship me. And every kingdom you see, I will give to you. 
And then the voice of the lion is heard. And he says, it is written. And with every one of those temptations, the Lion of Judah answers back with his mighty voice. He answers back with the Word of God. And at the end of the confrontation, he says, Be gone, Satan. It is written, You will worship the Lord your God only and serve him only. And then the angels came and ministered to Jesus. The Lion roared in the wilderness and Satan ran. There's another scene. Jesus was rejected by entire cities and villages. He, he wasn't welcomed everywhere he went. There are those who rejected him. And the lion spoke, the lion roared against them. Listen to these words from Matthew 11. Then Jesus, he began to reproach those cities. So this image that Jesus only had nice things to say is destroyed in one passage of Scripture. The lion will roar. And here's what he said. Jesus reproached these cities because they would not repent. And he said, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than it is for you. And so the lion is speaking to unrepentant sinners. Another image. The lion speaks and he makes it very clear that there is no middle ground between following him and not following him. Think about the lion's voice. He says in Luke eleven twenty three, 23, he who is not with me is against me. The lion roars. There is no middle ground with Jesus. Either he is your Lord or he is your judge. And then Jesus roars at the Pharisees. Remember the legalists of the day? Those religious authorities that burdened the people with excessive law and no gospel, no plan of salvation except to try to keep the law. And listen to what the lion said to these religious leaders who misdeployed, who misused the law. He says to them, you Pharisees are clean on the outside, but on the inside. You are full of robbery and wickedness. Woe to you. You are like a concealed tomb. And then the lion speaks again. This is Luke 14. He has a lot of followers. Maybe many attracted by the miracles, many attracted by the teaching. No doubt there were many following the Lord. And he spins on them, he turns, and he preaches a sermon that maybe only one person in all of human history has had the courage to preach. And listen to what he says. He says it to those who are following him. That's an amazing sermon. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, 
and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters and, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross cannot come after me and be my disciple. Hard words. The lion of the tribe of Judah speaks with authority. And what he means there is that he is Lord or he is nothing. Like the king, he has no rivals. Like the king of the jungle, there's no one to challenge him. And our love for Christ, our commitment to Christ, make, make, it makes everything else, every other commitment, every other love look like hate in comparison. You must love Christ first if you're going to follow him. That's an amazing claim. The lion, he, he, he roars with kingly authority. But then in Luke 19, we, we see the lion again, and this time Jesus goes to uh, the, the city we've been looking at in our typical Sunday morning sermon. We've been, we've been looking at the book of Joshua, and we thought a lot about the city of Jericho, and lo and behold, Jesus goes to Jericho, and he finds the crowds there, and he, he, he walks past them. He's, he's being lauded. He's being sought after, and it's as if he doesn't turn and even acknowledge the crowd, and he goes to a lonely sycamore tree. And, and there's a little man up in the tree to get a good look at Jesus. He can't see over the crowd, so he climbs up on a branch of the sycamore tree. He's looking down at Jesus, and the Lion of Judah comes up to him and says, Today, Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to you. Sovereign authority. Sovereign power. Sovereign grace, sovereign mercy, sovereign love. Then Matthew gives us another image of the lion. In chapter 21, at the ending of his ministry, Jesus returns to Jerusalem. He goes there for the, for the last time. He's going to die in days that follow. And Matthew describes how Jesus goes to the temple. I mean the temple, the centerpiece of Israelite worship, where everything was, where it all happened. Everything came from that place, that piece of sacred ground. And Jesus goes there, and lo and behold, Matthew says, the Lion of Judah begins to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturns the tables of the money changers. He turns the seats over where they sat selling doves. And then he stands there amidst all the debris that he's caused. And he says, my house. Imagine if you invited a friend over for dinner to your home. And he walked into your house. And he began turning everything over, rearranging this, rearranging that, pulling down that painting, moving that piece of furniture, changing the paint scheme of the house, leaving a pile of debris as he reconstructed your home. And you challenge him and he says, my house. Boy, you would be offended. And for good reason. And Jesus goes into their temple. In fact, it was Yahweh's temple. And he says, my house. The lion claiming that 
sacred site as his very own, my house, he says, quoting the Lord. is a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of thieves. The lion's roaring. Then Jesus, prior to his crucifixion, begins to teach, and Matthew is very uh, determined to present this long discourse that Jesus gives prior to his death on the cross. He begins to to preach about what's going to happen next, and he describes the events after his death and resurrection. Listen to what he says, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, remember that phrase, Son of Man, that is particularly tied to his deity, comes from Daniel, the messianic divine figure of Daniel, the Son of Man. Jesus says, that's me. Now, that's another sermon. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, like the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. He holds the key to life and death. He holds the keys of hell. He's a lion. He's the king. He's the lion of Judah, the exalted son, the king. And then in that scene, maybe we're thinking about even now as we reflect upon his death and resurrection, that scene in Luke 23, he stands before an earthly king named Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Pilate ruled Israel for Caesar. Pilate had fallen out of Caesar's graces, so he got sent to Israel, which was considered the armpit of the world. So there he is. He's in the doghouse of Caesar. He's having to rule these these Jewish people, these dirty people, these unwashed people. He's the king, though. He's the king of Israel. And Jesus is arrested and taken before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate does not want to crucify him. Pilate wants peace. His job is to keep the Jews from revolting against the the emperor. He is there to squash any rebellion. He wants them happy, playing nice with each other. Please don't crucify anyone. That's, That's his main task. Don't let anything bad happen on my watch. I want to earn my favor with Caesar. And they bring Jesus, the Sanhedrin, the religious authorities with their own police force bring Jesus to Pilate and they say, we can't kill him because Caesar won't let us execute anybody, so you kill him. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's blaspheming Yahweh. He made a mess in the temple and we want him dead. And so Pilate looks him in the eye and he says, now look, Jesus, They're claiming you're out there saying you're a king. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the lion? 
Are you the lion of the tribe of Judah? And Jesus said, it is as you say. And then Pilate, he gets hot under the collar. That sounds disrespectful. Don't you know that I can have you crucified? And Jesus says, you would have no power, but that my Father gives it to you. I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. And your heart is beating right now because Yahweh is giving you permission to live. And Pilate is afraid. He makes efforts to have him freed. He, he wants this man who was the Lion King. He wants him freed. There's something going on in Pilate's own heart. He's beginning to realize that, oh, this is more than a nut here. This is more than some Messiah wannabe. This may be the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And the crowd will have none of that. They're going to riot and he thinks of Caesar, and he thinks of his job to keep the peace, and he says, all right already, all right already, you can have him, you can kill your king. I wash my hands, I have nothing to do. This is on you, he says. And they crucified the lion king of Judah. And there he is hanging on the cross. He has two thieves, one on each side. Jesus is slowly dying the life is going out of him second by second and one begins to blaspheme him to hurl abuses to hurl curses at him the other the other says this paraphrase shut up you and i are getting exactly what we deserve we are thieves but this man has done nothing and then he looks at jesus and he says jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and there on the cross, this old, dirty, rotten thief recognized the lion of the tribe of Judah and said, save me, save me. And what did the lion roar to him? Oh, with tenderness, with authority, with power, the lion roars softly, as it were. And he says, this day you will be with me in paradise. The last thing the lion said is recorded for us. He speaks from the cross. He uses the fleeting breaths that he has, and he, he speaks words that are, that are most profound. In fact, he makes the most startling and significant announcement ever made to humanity. He says this, life flowing from him, he says, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then Luke says, having said that, he breathed his last. And then the clock starts ticking. The body of Jesus is placed in the tomb, a tomb he had to borrow. Joseph of Arimathea loaned turns out loaned Jesus a tomb. His body is bound in burial cloths. It is anointed. It is almost compacted with 
pound after pound of spices and ointments and aloes. His body is cocooned, as it were, to preserve it and and place in that tomb a a 2,000-pound rock is rolled through uh, the opening, into the opening, in a groove, in a trench, and it is sealed with the emperor's signet ring. And the lion is not speaking. The king of the jungle is dead. And the clock ticks, and his followers run. And the world looks like a dark place, and hell is rejoicing. The Roman guards are there, keeping watch, making sure none of his followers do something stupid. And then the impossible happens. Whatever happened, it scared those soldiers away. They dropped their weapons and ran like scared schoolchildren. And that stone was not simply rolled away, it was tossed away, it was picked up and thrown. And when the inspections were made, there was, there was no one there. The, the body of Jesus was gone. And then he appears. And the lion speaks. To those he met, who met him, he says, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers, my apostles, my disciples, go tell my brothers, Go tell my physical brothers, his earthly family who did not believe in him, namely Jude, go tell my brothers, go tell my followers that they will see me in Galilee. To doubting Thomas, the lion says, touch me. Put your hands in the nail prints. Look at my side. Touch it. It's me. The lion is roaring with life. And then there's this amazing scene that that we've probably never tied to the resurrection. Then, Then after many appearances, sometimes with large groups, one time he met with 500 at once, and they all got to touch him and talk to him and prove to themselves that he was no apparition. He was really physically alive. He, he died physically. He was raised bodily, and they were convinced of it. And then he appears with his disciples that one last time, and listen to what the lion says, and now tie the pieces together. He says, all authority is given to me in earth and in heaven. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And the lion speaks again. And that brings us back to Revelation 5. John sees a scroll, and on that scroll is the testimony of history. Past, present, future, already written down. God's sovereign ordination of all things in a scroll. Who can open it? Who is the Lord of the scroll? Who is the Lord of history? Who is the Lord of time? 
Who is the Lord of space? Who is worthy? And the voice from the elders is only one, the lion of the tribe of Judah. When John first hears the question, who is worthy, and he recognizes that no one is worthy at all, he begins to weep. And one of the elders will say to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, David's own root, David's own offspring, has conquered. And he can open the scroll. What does that mean to you and for you? And to us. What does Judah's lion have to do with you and me? Well, we have sins and guilt before God that we can do nothing about. At the end of the day, there's only reason to weep. There is no good news for humanity. We are guilty. We are sinful. We deserve to be devoured by the lion. We need a savior. We need someone to pay for our sins. God is holy. And he has every right to demand full payment for the breaking of his laws. And we're all guilty of that. And he has said the soul that sins must die, that the wages of sin is death. We need someone to save us. If we're going to be saved, oddly enough, it must be by an act of God himself. No one else is worthy or able to take away our reason for weeping. God must save us from himself by himself. And so what does he do? He sends us a Savior whose name is Lion. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The glorious witness of Scripture is plain enough. God was in Christ. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. The Lion of Judah came to save you and me. Again, Scripture says, therefore, having been justified by faith, that is faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The the irony is that the lion comes and he makes his sound, his awesome sound, and that actually is the sound of peace for us who trust him. He makes peace with God for us. He is the only provision for our sins. He is the only source of our atonement. He is the only avenue to eternal life. We have to trust in the line of Judah. 
who lived and died and rose again. We have to believe the scripture that says that God made him, the line of Judah, who knew no sin, who was innocent, who was perfect, to be sin so that he might, on our behalf, save us and make us into the righteousness of God. We must believe that he came and he died and he rose again on the third day and that he was declared with power to be who he claimed to be by the resurrection of the dead. He is your shepherd, your great shepherd. He is highly exalted. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And there's no one else to take away your weeping but him. The psalmist spoke these words that have resonated in my heart all week as I've reflected on this passage of Scripture. Weeping, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Out of that tomb came a lion for you. He did what he did for you. And weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. If you've already trusted him, you already know that morning joy even now. The lion is not against you. He's for you. And though you suffer, though we do suffer, though things don't go as we plan in this earth, we're like Job sometimes. Weeping is only momentary. Joy comes in the morning, and it will last a lot longer because the lion has come. And he has died in our place and been raised never to die again. He has roared on our behalf to save us. Jesus, a lion. Who would have thought it? Who would have thought it? Is he yours? Have you heard his voice? Have you trusted him? Has he taken away your weeping? Would you, would you pray with me?